Well, it is my honor to be able to fill in in Pastor Davin's absence. And whenever I get that opportunity, um, I always want to bring a little bit of the exciting things that God's doing across the street over here and share it with you. And so the very first Wednesday night in January, I started with this idea of the Bible, fake news or good news. So the very first message, we outlined what the Bible is, how it teaches us to interact with God and this kind of stuff, and quickly determined that the Bible is not fake news. Um, It's good news. In fact, it's the greatest news ever because it teaches us about Jesus Christ and that, that, that there is hope in a Savior who God sent to this earth to die on the cross for our sins. And so from there, we launched into opening the floor for questions for our students to ask about the Bible. I had no idea where this would go, but at this point we're somewhere between 80 and 90 questions that the students have asked about the Bible. And every Wednesday night we're addressing four, five, six of these questions with them. We're up to somewhere around 60 right now. I'm not going to say we're going to answer all of them because some of them aren't Bible questions. But we're going to answer as many as we can, and it has been a great, great thing. One of the cool things that's been happening is every Wednesday night after we answer these questions, it sparks more questions. And as soon as the service is over, we're having conversations about the Bible in this group and that group all over the annex every Wednesday night. In fact, this morning when I got done with the sermon, the same exact thing happened on the front row right up here in the first service. And so it's been really, really exciting as the students have come and they have engaged with God's Word and what it says and answering their questions. So I want to bring that over here this morning because we as believers, we need to be people that read the Bible. We need to be people that study the Bible and we need to be people that live by the Bible. And so in order to do that, we have to know the Bible. But in my research, I found that that is not necessarily true of all people. Barna published a study a few years back that talked about the people that actually believe the Word of God to be true. And it goes back to the World War II generation. The World War II generation, it says 65% of Americans believed the Bible to be true and an authority in their life. It gets worse from there. The baby boomers go down to 35%. Generation X goes down to 18%. Millennials, he gave a range of somewhere between 4 and 14%. And so that number goes down with each generation. Now, I want to turn that around. Gen Z is the ones that I have over in the youth building with me each and every week, and I want to make sure that that percentage goes up. Now, I may not be able to affect the entire generation, but where my realm of influence is, I want to make sure that I am reading, teaching, and living by God's Word and helping them to do the same so that that number goes up, at least in the area where I have influence. So we bring these questions this morning, and we're going to go through some of them, uh, but we want to do that in light of God's Scripture. So if you will, find 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And when we look at God's Scripture and the importance of it, this passage sets us up for understanding the importance of the Scripture. So when you find 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, if you will, please stand in honor of reading of God's Word. 
2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I, I pray that as we open the scriptures, as we open your word and dive into these questions that our students have been asking, God, that you would use them profitable in our lives, that you would teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness as we prepare to do your work in this place. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So in the first service, when the students were not in here, I could make a good joke right now, but now they're here, so they may not appreciate it as much. The very first question I got after putting the QR code up on the screen and asking the students for questions was, what does the Bible say about using bad words? I don't know why a teenager would ask about using bad words. Maybe some of them are exposed to it a lot and a lot of their friends use bad words and so they were asking for a friend, right? No, I've got this question many times over my years in student ministry, but I appreciate the way this one was asked. This person asked, what does the Bible say about using bad words? So let's jump right into what the Bible says. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, straight out of God's words. That's what it says. And not only that, it says make sure that you are using words that benefit others. And I don't know about you, but whenever I've heard somebody use bad language, I don't think it benefited anybody. And so the Bible is pretty clear that we should not use bad language. The next chapter of Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, chapter 5 verse 4 says, Nor should there be obscenity. Foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Again, we see the Bible's very clear that there should be no obscenities, and it goes on to say no coarse joking. Uh oh, we're stepping on a few more toes now. Some of us may go, you know, that language is, you know, I've moved on, I'm no longer using bad language, but some of the things we talk about are not always uplifting and, as the scripture said, giving thanks to God. And so we need to know that there's a higher standard than just not using bad words because Jesus says in Luke 6, 45, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And as believers, our hearts should be full of Christ and what comes out of our mouth should be that of Christ and not the obscenities of this world. Now, this question was not necessarily asked like this, but when I have received this question over the years from young people, it's always like they're defending that their language is not a sin. And their defense is everybody in my school, my entire generation, speaks like this. They use this language. So when I use those words, I'm not offending anybody. I'm not sinning against anybody. So it's not wrong. And so for years I have pointed out to young people that the world does not get to set the standards. God's word sets the standards. And so while you may not be offending that person, you are offending God. 
Because God's word is clear that we should not talk like that. That we should be different than the world. And if we are blending in and acting like the world in the way we act and the way we speak, then we're being disobedient to God. And it is a sin that we are called to be different. So I think that that is uh, the question that came to us from a teenager but is appropriate for all of us. In watching the way we speak, making sure that the words are not of this world but they are uplifting and giving thanks to God the next question that I got I figured would be a good uh, Baptist question to answer Um, some student asked why do Baptists submerge for baptism instead of sprinkle and so I think that this is something that in the Baptist church you'll hear us say pretty regularly that we baptize by immersion but how often do we actually teach on it Uh, So this morning, we start with the language. The language of Greek and Hebrew that we understand, um, the two words that we see for baptism are babto and baptizimo. Babto means to submerge. Baptizimo is this idea of ritual cleansing. And so we understand that in our baptism that uh, we are submerged um, from babto, from baptizimo, it is that idea of ritual cleansing. We see this all through the through the Bible. In the Old Testament, it kind of starts with the, the law and how they should act in the tabernacle and the temple. We see that they should baptize their instruments into blood or into the oil before they paint it or sprinkle it on the altar of God. And so we see this, and it's the same concept of submerging the instruments into the blood or oil. And then we jump to the New Testament, and we start to get this example of baptism by submersion. John the Baptist, of course, comes and he says, come, repent, and be baptized. And he's out at the Jordan River where they are going into the river and baptizing. Jesus comes along and he tells John to baptize him and not to recount the whole story, but of course John says, no, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, to fulfill what God has said, you must baptize me. And so the scripture tells us that they are in the Jordan that he baptized him when he comes out of the water that a dove ascends upon him and the voice of God says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And so we see that Jesus' baptism is by submersion in the language used in the New Testament. It doesn't end there. In Acts, jumping into the New Testament church, we get this story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch where the Ethiopian eunuch is riding in the chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, and he is not able to understand it. Philip comes running along beside the chariot and says, do you need somebody to explain that to you? And once he explains the scriptures, the Ethiopian unit accepts Jesus as his savior and says, is there any reason that I should not be baptized? Reminding you that they are in the desert. God provides a water for them to be baptized. And in Acts chapter 8 verse 38, it says, He gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. So we see in the New Testament, whether it be John the Baptist and Jesus or Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, that they are modeling baptism by immersion in the New Testament. So that is why we as Baptists baptized by immersion. I'll give you a bonus. 
in baptisms, the, there's words that we all kind of say when we baptize up here, and they're straight out of Scripture as well. We all say that we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, we are commanded in Matthew 28 to go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the words that we're saying are straight out of Scripture. When we baptize, many times you'll hear us say, buried in the likeness of his death and risen to walk in the newness of life. Sometimes the buried in the likeness of his death is very clear, and then as we're pulling up, we're risen to walk in the newness of life. It's straight out of Scripture as well. Let me read for you Romans 6, 3 and 4. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through our baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. So right there out of Romans is the words that you will hear us say when we're baptizing up there. So we as Baptists, we baptize by submersion because we, we are following what we believe to be the biblical model for baptism. Moving on to question three, we get a little bit deeper. Uh, some student asks, why don't Christians follow the Old Testament laws? And so a great question here. Why don't we follow the Old Testament law? And, and the real question that they're asking is, why don't we follow the Mosaic law? The law where Moses tells the people about the sacrificial system of the tabernacle and the temple and all the sacrifices that they did in the Old Testament. So the answer starts with that. We understand that that is the covenant that God made with Moses and the people of the time. In fact, God's covenant has kind of changed over time. How he has interacted with people, how he has dealt with man. His character has not changed and his purpose has not changed, but the how has changed over time. We see it all the way from um, Adam to Noah to Abraham, Moses, and ultimately the new covenant in Christ Jesus. Let me give you a case study to make my point here. The way that God has commanded us to interact with food. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, God says, and all, I'm sorry, and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, that includes us, I give every green plant for food. So in the garden, food was every green plant given to man. And so that's how God commanded man to interact with food in the beginning. And then we go from there. It doesn't take us too long to get to Noah. Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, it says, Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants, I now give you everything. So after the flood, we enter into the, the covenant under Noah. And at that time, we go from every green plant is food to everything is food under the Noah covenant. Then we jump ahead to the Moses covenant that we're probably most familiar with. And we get to Leviticus chapter eleven forty-seven, And it says, you must distinguish between the unclean and clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eating, eaten. So now the interaction has changed again. We have gone from plants to all things are permissible to now you must determine what is clean and unclean. And of course there's a lot of scriptures to help determine what is clean and what is unclean. 
But that doesn't end there. We jump ahead to the new covenant under Jesus Christ. And under the new covenant, there's multiple places that tell us that now all things are permissible. I'm going to read from Romans 14, verses 1 through 3. It says, Except for those whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another's whose faith is weak only eats vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. I told you there's several passages that I could have jumped to in the New Testament that says all things are permissible. But the reason I chose this passage is I want to point out that the new covenant under Jesus Christ emphasizes relationship. And so everybody may not eat the exact same thing under the new covenant, but everything is permissible. And so whatever you and your relationship with God is and the, how the Holy Spirit talks to you, whatever you decide to do, it's between you and God at this point. And people that eat one way shouldn't judge people that eat another way. And so this changes the covenant into everything is permissible, but everything may not be beneficial it's between you and God. And then for meat eaters like me, I've got bad news. The covenant changes again. We get to the end times and we get to heaven. And in Revelation 21, we find out that there is no more death. And so with no more death, there's no more steak. <laughs> there's no more bacon. And so we will go back to no longer eating meat. So we see that God's interaction with man and the way that man are command, the commands that he gives man changes through the different covenants. But God doesn't change. But the real question here is how do we determine what commands do we keep doing and what commands do we stop doing? There's two theological thoughts here. The first one is the covenant theologian. The covenant theologian would say that the rules from the old covenant apply unless the new covenant specifically does away with them. For example, in the Old Testament, these laws of sacrifice that we see, when Jesus came on the scene, Jesus said, I fulfilled these laws, so you no longer have to do it. So a covenant theologian would say, we no longer have to do that because Jesus says we no longer have to do that. The dispensational theologian would say uh, you only follow the Old Testament laws if it is reiterated under the New Covenant. For example, the Ten Commandments are the commandments in the Old Testament. Jesus comes along and again, he reiterates the Ten Commandments in his teachings. And so we still abide by them today. So these are very easy interpretations of the sacrificial system and the Ten Commandments. But there's a lot of other things that are a little bit more vague, and it depends on which way you lean. Does it have to be reaffirmed, or does it have to be taken away? So, maybe you could use this to argue a tithing debate, or you could use this to argue a homosexuality debate, or something like that, a little bit more controversial. I'm telling you, this is the reason that we have splits in denominations and disagreements in the church is the different interpretation of what we should hold on to and what we should no longer hold to. But let me assure you of this. When God changes the covenant and the interaction with man, God doesn't change. 
God is still the same as he was back then, he is today. And in fact, his purpose in the interaction is the same. His purpose in the law of the Old Testament and the commands of the New Testament are to expose sin in your life, to expose the need for a Savior so that you would put your trust in him and your dependence in him and that they're, uh, acknowledge that there is nothing you can do yourself. Second, his commands of the old, his laws of the Old Testament, his commands of the New Testament are to set us apart from the world. Just like we talked about with the bad language. We are supposed to be different than the world. And the laws of the Old Testament set the nation of Israel apart so that God could be seen through them. The commands of the New Testament set us apart so that God can be seen in us. So whatever covenant God is operating under, his purpose is to expose sin and a need for a savior, and to set us apart so that the world can see him. The next question I have for us is, a student asked a very difficult question that maybe I had never thought about before. Said, God created day and night before he did the sun, moon, and the stars. How's that possible? Where did the light come from? And so I got this question and it comes straight out of Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 we see and God said let there be light and there was light God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness he called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning on the first day and then we get all the way to the fourth day before God creates the sun the moon and the stars how is this possible I have no idea in fact, there have been many questions that I've had to give the answer. I have no idea. But what I have tried to do in situations like this is present options of what other people have thought about and what other people have published so that we can just have a conversation about what's going on in God's Word. So that's what I want to do with this question is what are some options? What could have God used for the light? The first option that I found is it could have been Christ. We see that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. God could have used Jesus and the light that Jesus is to be the original light from day one that he separated into day and tonight. The second option that I found is some people believe that the light could have been a pillar of fire. We see in the Old Testament that God uses a pillar of fire to guide his people by day and that this pillar of fire is something he's used in the Old Testament. He could have used it in creation as well. And this pillar of fire could have been the light. And these people believe that that pillar of fire would have ultimately become the sun. Another option is that it could have been the essence of the sun. The essence of the sun, the idea is that it is the light of the sun, but not the mass of the sun. So God created light first, and it was the light that would ultimately come from the sun, but he did not physically create the sun. Don't know how they came up with that one. The next thought is that it could have been the angels. Very easily, the angels could have been created before the creation of the world. And the angels, every time we see them in Scripture, are seen as light. And we see that all throughout the Scriptures. And so God could have used the light of the angels to light the world in the beginning before he separated it into day and night. And if I was pressed to choose one, um, I would choose this last one, that the light is God's glory. That when we see God, we, 
and his glory is seen as light throughout the Bible. When we get to the end times in heaven, we see there is no need for a sun because God's glory lights up heaven. And so very easily God could have used his own glory to be the light that lit up the world that he separated into day and night. So again, we don't know exactly what, if it's one of these options or something else. But let's read what we do know. First, whatever it was, it lit up everything. Whatever the light was, it was so bright, it was so big that it lit up everything because God had to separate it. He had to separate it into darkness and light in order to create day and night. So whatever it was, it lit up everything. Second, we know that it was good because God saw the light and he said it was good. So whatever it is, it lit up everything and it was good. And finally, I want to conclude with whatever it was, it should not give us any heartburn over the reliability of the creation story. Because God doesn't need a sun to create light. Because with God, all things are possible. And so whatever he chose to use to create light on the first day of creation should not give us any stress over the reliability of his creation story. That leads us into our next question that uh, some student asked that said, why do pastors and other believers have different, maybe contradictory views on things? And how do we know which is the right one? It's a great question. Because there are a lot of views, there's a lot of opinions out there. And I want to start by saying that in most cases, we're doing the best we can. <laughs> we, just like you, want to understand the answers to these questions. We want to know what truth is. We want to know more about God. And we are doing the best we can. But when we come to a conclusion, and when you come to a conclusion, our answers come with bias. What's bias? Of course, we're, um, the bias comes from the way we were raised, our childhood, the education that we chose to get, the life experiences that we've gone through, all of that stuff leads us to conclusions. And our conclusions may be different because of that. I can tell you on our staff of our six pastors that we don't agree on everything. That there are some theological discussions that one of us leans one way and one leans another way. But I'll tell you this, if we brought in a pastor from another denomination, there would be even more differences between the way we believe and the way they believe. We have to acknowledge that we're okay with that as long as it is not a salvation issue. All of us as Christians have to believe that the only way to heaven is by faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus came to this earth, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and three days later was raised back to life to defeat sin and death so that we could spend eternity in heaven with God. And if we can agree on that, there are other non-salvation issues that we don't have to agree on. We look at some of the conversations that we've had. One of the really cool byproduct of this series is that it has overflown from Wednesday night into our offices downstairs. So I've brought these questions up to other people because 
I'm just trying to research and get answers, right? And so we've had discussions among the pastoral staff about some of these difficult topics. We've had discussions with some of our administrative assistants about these difficult topics. And we've had these conversations all throughout the office. Now, I don't know about you at your workplace, how often you have spiritual conversations, conversations about what the Bible says about this and that. But I'm pretty sure that our students, and I told them this already, are not having these conversations in the locker room at school. They're not having these conversations in the hallways at school. But we need to be having these conversations. Even if we don't come to the same conclusion, it is healthy for us to have these conversations because it drives us back to the Bible to where we go and we research and we dive in and we try to understand God and we ask questions of other people and we bring them into the conversation and we are talking about the things of God even if we don't agree, even if we don't come to a conclusion at all because some of these topics are very difficult. We are engaging with God's Word and that is a good thing. When we come to topics like predestination, very difficult topics, that we all may not agree on. And I'm not touching this morning. (laughs) It's healthy to have the conversations when we come to end times that are difficult and there's lots of opinions. And again, I'm not doing that this morning. We don't have to all agree. They're not salvation issues. But when we do have these conversations, we need to approach them with humility. None of us have all the answers. None of us know everything. We can always learn from other people. So when we have these conversations, we approach them with humility, trying to grow and learn ourselves because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And who can understand the mind of God? We're doing the best we can. And we work together to try to figure it out. I want to conclude with this last question that somebody asked recently. Why do some Christians believe the complete opposite of the Bible when it says not to do it in the Bible? This question came shortly after the whole bad language question. So it could have been that a student was listening to my answer about bad language and that the Bible was very clear that we should not be using bad language and they were asking the question, Well, if it's so clear in the Bible, why do Christians keep doing it? It could have been what was behind this question. Or it could have been something a little bit more current event um, politically that's going on in our world right now with abortion. If abortion is so clearly murder and we should not murder, why are there people that still say it's okay? Or maybe it could have been one of these sexuality topics that is going around right now where people, where clearly the Bible teaches that homosexuality is wrong, but there are people and even denominations that are saying it's okay. Why do some Christians believe the complete opposite of what the Bible says? Why questions are very difficult. But... I believe that the why is because they're justifying sin. As a student pastor, sadly, statistics tell me that about 60% of the students that grow up in our church and go off to college will choose 
to live differently than what they've been taught through God's word over the course of their life. And so 60% of them will walk away from their faith and live according to the world's standards. And they're doing that because when they get to that college and they start engaging in inappropriate activity, they know God's word and it causes guilt in their life. Nobody likes guilt. And so instead of stopping the actions that cause the guilt, they walk away from God's word that's causing the guilt. Statistics tell us that 60%. I had one student that did exactly that, graduated high school, walked away, and started living a life that would not honor God. They continued to come to church, and they had guilt every time they were here. Fortunately, this student has now come back to faith and is back engaged in, with God and in the church but they said at the time, I came in the church and I knew I was doing things that were wrong. I felt like everybody in the church knew I was doing these things wrong. And I just had so much guilt, I stopped coming to church. Like I said, thankfully this person has returned to church. And the way that I got that information is that they're back in church doing what they were supposed to do. But we see that that is the case, we try to get rid of the guilt. And so for some of us, that may be walk away from church. For others, it's read the Bible differently. Read it in a way that justifies your sin, that allows you to live the way you want to live instead of the way God's Word wants to live. And this is not just a personal problem. This can be a church problem too. Because as a church, they can read the Bible in a way that changes what it means in order to be more culturally acceptable. Because churches want to attract a crowd. Churches want to be popular. Churches want people to come to them. And so they will change the way the Bible reads in order to be culturally acceptable. But thank God we have a pastor that stands here each and every week and preaches the entire scriptures unashamedly regardless of what culture says. And so we want to be people that read the Bible that study the Bible, and that live by the Bible. So if today I've stepped on your toes and maybe you're sitting in the pews with guilt, that maybe you're not reading the Bible, start reading the Bible. If you're sitting there and maybe you've got guilt that you're not studying the Bible, start studying the Bible. If you've got guilt that you're not living by the Bible, start living by the Bible. Don't walk out of the doors to get rid of the guilt. Change your actions to line up with God's word and the guilt will go away. May we be a people that stand on the word of God and lives our life different than the world so that the world sees Christ in and through each and every one of us here at First Baptist Pelham. We're going to have an invitation time and uh, this would be your opportunity to uh, come to the altar, to make your commitment known to God, to do business with him. Or if you need to come forward and join the church or come for baptism because you've given your life to Christ, now is the time for you to respond to what God is speaking to in your heart. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we can read it that we can understand it by the power of your spirit, God. I pray that this morning that your word has 
taught us, that has corrected us, and prepared us for the works that you have made us for. God, as we respond this morning, may we not hesitate to do what you're calling us to do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.